Hello, welcome to my podcast, which is a guide to EU financial politics and policy development. The topics vary. Last time round, we discussed ethics and finance and the global ethics and finance price. This time, my topic is pensions, EU pensions, and notably, of course, the pan-European pension product, which is going to be coming live on the 1st of January 2022. With me to discuss this subject, I have Professor Hans van Meerten, who is a professor of European pension law at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. He is a long-time expert on this. I don't think what he doesn't know on PEP, I think, will cannot even be mentioned because I see all his posts, his research and his involvement with the IOPA stakeholder group, all the different working groups at the commission level. So I couldn't have a better person to discuss this launch of this long-awaited product with me. Welcome, Hans. Yeah, thank you, Josina. Thank you very much. And the very kind words. I hope I can live up to the big expectations. No, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure you can. Okay. Now, back in 2020, the high-level forum on capital markets union, which was set up by the European Commission, showed that 18% of EU citizens currently are at risk of poverty or social exclusion in older age making pension adequacy a major policy issue. It's a walking time bomb. At CFA Institutes, we have done several global surveys which highlighted this issue. And it is something that I think has always been on the back burner of the European Commission. It was difficult because of course, it's a national prerogative. And it was very difficult, the long road to building a pan-European pension product. And we'll have to see how it's going to work out, but we'll be discussing some of the points. What I noted of interest, too, is that um, on the 1st of December, IOPA also published an advice to the European Commission on two pension tools, which is a pension tracking system and a pension dashboard. And I think this is going to be crucial as we build convergence, having that information, both for the citizens and for regulators, is going to, ha- is going to be absolutely key to developing the market. And I'm going to quote you because um, um, from my own um, <clears throat> from my own saying, I, it, it even came up on the Commission website when we there were several stakeholders who mentioned what PEP could be doing for them. And I'm a very good example of a person who should be using PEP because I have pension schemes from around five member states and I have around 12 different pensions. I really don't know what I'm going to be having. So for me, PEP should have come into being 30 years ago, would have been extremely useful for me. We have also at CFA Institute worked together with the Mercer Global Pension Index. And again, it's an interesting index, which looks at you know, sustainability, adequacy, participation of the government, what is the sort of, what is the economic background, and looking at the governance of pension plans. And I think that that's an important background because, of course, in the EU, pension schemes are varied and vastly different. Now, the lack of standardized rules in the EU and the, the fact that pensions are essentially national remit. How can we develop a PEP and can it be a solution? Is it a solution already to the different pension systems? Because Hans, of course, you are based in the Netherlands and the Netherlands is an example. Last year, the Netherlands was at the top of the Mercer Pension Index as being the most sustainable pension system. This year, it's number two, and we have Iceland on on top. Um, But it's still, of course, one of the really top examples to follow. And 
we have seen that PEP is probably going to be more useful for some member states and maybe less for others, but there should be a general view as to how it might develop and how it might overcome some of the challenges. Do you want to highlight some of these challenges and, and also where we might be going to from here? Yeah, thank you, Josina. Um, okay, let me, maybe it's best for a common understanding from why is the PEP, why has the PEP seen daylight? It might be good to briefly summarize the history of the PEP. Yeah. Uh, in my view, it began, of course, with the IORP, so the Institutions for Occupational Retirement Provision, which is a second pillar instrument, so occupational pillar. And... Uh, before 2000, the year 2000, it was a long time debated already, but the IOP 1 director, directive saw the lifelight in 2003. So, and it tried to enhance cross-border activity of IORPs, so second pillar IORPs. So basically the idea was, if you have one IORP in one member state, then it's easier, you know, to transfer basically the accrued pension money into one vehicle, instead of having then 27, pension funds, you could suffice with one. That was the idea. And, you know, then in order to obtain economies of scale, you know, bigger uh, scale, basically bigger enrollment of the pension schemes, you could also lower the costs. That was the idea of the IO1. The IO1 was uh, revised in 2016, and it was implemented into national uh, laws in 2019, but still, uh, the cross-border activity of pension funds was still very much behind. It didn't, in my view, not only in my view, but it didn't really achieve the goals it was aimed to have. In, the, in that context, you must see, I think, the PEP, because the European legislator didn't give up, fortunately, you know, and still uh, sees the enormous aging problem we have in Europe, not only, not only in Europe worldwide, basically, yeah, there's a huge aging problem, as you are aware, of course, uh, it's a ticking time, time bomb indeed. So the European legislator has to come up with a, a solution, basically. In that context, again, you have to see the PEP. It's a so-called third pillar product, at least. That's how it perceived to be. We'll get back to that later on. If it's really a third pillar product, I have my doubts here and there. But anyway, you know, uh, seeing the legal basis also of the product itself, you might say, okay, the PEP, the Pan-European Pension Fund, is another attempt of enhancing cross-border activity in the European Union, which is a major problem. Also, what you highlighted before, if you have five different pension pots in different member states, you know, you lose track of basically what you have in pension accrual. So the PEP is a solution for exactly that problem. Yes, so, so that's the history. And, and will it solve the pension crisis? Not right now. Of course, that would be too much, uh, too good to be true, you know. But as we saw with other uh, financial legislation, like, for example, the USITS, it took five or six versions to really make it um, a better, a better product. I'm not saying with the PEP, it also will take five or six versions of the uh, regulation. Let's hope not, you know, it will take some time. But at least the beginning is there. And I'm very positive and very hopeful that the PEP legislation will actually contribute to the diminishing of the pension gap we have in Europe. I think it's very important that you remind our listeners that European law is not made as a revolution. 
it's, yeah. it's an evolution. And I think regulators know this, but it is difficult because, of course, as we said, pensions is a national issue. Consumer law is national. So consumer protection is, is national. And we have speci- we have tax regimes which are vastly different, and tax, of course, is 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 a really difficult thing to overcome. At yeah. some stage, of course, it's it's going to have to be addressed. We know that the European Parliament is more and more looking into differences of tax uh, regimes and how that could be affecting the capital markets. So, as you said, do you want to comment any a little bit on this on this tax issue? Yeah, because that's absolutely true, uh, Josina. And uh, we saw that also with the IORP. One of the reasons that it didn't really uh, get the goals it was aimed to have is because national authorities basically gold-plated, if you will, or not even gold, I would say less of a metal, you know, plated, the legislation which led to the situation that all kinds of member states had all different requirements. And that is, of course, uh, practically tried to be impossible with the PEP, you know, by uh, harmonizing as much possible as you can. Basically, it becomes less possible for the national legislator, of course, to have national demands on top of that. So the cross-border activity from A to B, from member state A to member state B, will then, of course, uh, be easier in theory if national legislators cannot impose all kinds of national restrictions. That is, of course, only there, only true for the non-fiscal part, eh? because as you said, fiscally, it's not harmonized. Uh, That's still a bridge too far, but the tax regime, basically still there is a recommendation, of course, added to the PEP uh, legislation, but it's only a recommendation. It's saying, okay, you should have, every member state should have an exempt, exempt tax system. Most member states, luckily, already have that in place. So, but at least you should give, that's the recommendation, the same tax relief for the PEP as for national third pillar products. That's what basically the European legislator says in in that recommendation. It's not binding, you know, a recommendation, but seeing the experiences with soft law in other areas, I think it's a pretty strong argument also to give tax incentive to the app as your national third pillar products. Yeah, gold plating is always an issue. And I think the strategy is right to build up as, as much harmonized at, at sort of the top level, yeah. um, get rid of extra gold plating, as you say. Mm-hmm. Now, the Netherlands is an example, but we've also seen in the press recently, there's been some quite a revolution, I would say, in the Netherlands, where there, there is a shift from DB to, to DC. And um, this is a general shift globally, I would say. So what, what can you bring us as your sort of view of what's been happening in the Netherlands and as a sort of precursor to, to what might be happening in Europe globally? Yeah, well, I'm a bit skeptical towards the Dutch reform. Uh, we'll get to that in one minute. We see basically everywhere that the shift from defined benefit to defined contribution has already taken place. In most countries in Europe, it was made already a decade ago. But we are now, you're right, uh, forefront of a big operation, you know, moving the entire DB uh, accrual into a new DC system. We call that invaren in Dutch, or conversion, basically, of the old rights into the new ones. And I think, personally, that will bring about a lot of questions on property rights, you know, because you transfer, basically, you change the contract, you change the legal contract, 
from a defined benefit character to a defined contribution character. In most European countries, if not all the European countries, that is actually forbidden eh, to do so because you're changing again the, the legal framework of the contract. So my suggestion also to the to the Dutch legislator is now, you know, try to keep this separate, try to make two systems. So the old basically DB system and the new DC system. What kind of role could a PEP play in this? Well, if it's up to the Dutch legislator, not much, because they voted against the PEP. It was the one and only member state. I remember. Even yeah. the UK voted when they were still in favor. Can you imagine, you know? But the Dutch were against. Why? Because they think that the PEP might uh, be a danger to the compulsory membership we have in the Netherlands. So the reasoning is, okay, if you allow a Dutch a mandatory pension fund to operate a PEP, you know, that might endanger the validity of the uh, mandatory participation. I think that's not completely true or even not true at all. I don't see this danger. But in the Netherlands, one is the legislator is very afraid of this, so they voted against. And I think that's a pity because I think the PEP also in the Netherlands could play a huge role, not only for the growing self-employed, uh, which we have over a million, meanwhile, in the Netherlands. But also, PEP is always perceived as an individual pension product. Yes, that's true. But that doesn't mean you, you cannot offer it collectively. So I would say that's also a strategy, also a way, basically, of a union, for example, which are very powerful in the Netherlands, to organize PEP for the self-employed, you know, just... To give a sidestep, I think one, one thinks too narrow-minded of the PEP in the Netherlands. Immediately when they said, uh, Dara said, okay, it doesn't play a role here in the Netherlands. It's only for the middle and the Eastern European countries where you barely have pension accrual, you know, where you... But no, also for the traditional pension countries like the Netherlands, like Germany, like Belgium also, the PEP also, I think there is a very attractive solution. I'm very happy to hear you say that. I think it deserves a good launch. It, it's a good product. It yeah. has its growing pains, of course. So we, we're in agreement that it's a good product to come. It has obviously some design flaws. What, do, what are the issues you might see from the portability of the PEP and also on the cap on fees? Now, that was a hard fought battle. It came into being, but how do you how do you see uh, this this panning out? Do you think it's going to stay, evolve? What is your feeling on this? And maybe also a little bit, if you could go into the kit, because the KID is something that at CFA Institute we did say this was really crucial. A well designed, easy KID for this pension product would be crucial, and it is there, of course. Is it the right one though? Yeah. Well, uh, yes, you're right. Again, you know, Pep, it isn't perfect at all. It, but as far as I'm concerned, this is the first attempt, first draft. I'm very, very happy and very enthusiastic that it's even there, you know, because it was a close call, as you mentioned. But it's there and it will be improved in the coming time. So I, I'm not skeptical or pessimistic about that. Of course, uh, the PEP1 legislation has some flaws. One of the flaws is that, in my view, it's not clear enough when there is a question of when do you offer a so-called guarantee. There is no definition of a guarantee on the European level. And that leads to a sometimes un uneven playing field, so to say, by different PEP providers, you know, because a Solvency II PEP provider 
is bound by the solvency two framework as the underlying principle, but the usage provider, usage per provider can also simulate basically guarantees, um, but is uh, then subject to a completely different prudential regime. So I would say, let's try to harmonize also the guarantees might it be a solvency tool guarantee or might it be a use guarantee, at least try to bring some harmonization into that field, because otherwise we are still bound by different definitions of guarantee. So I see that as a, a problem uh, which, which we need to solve. Uh, of course, there's the fee cap that is attached to this problem because the fee cap, 1%, some say it's too low. I doubt it because if you follow the developments in the UK, for example, you see there's some so, so smartphone app providers working for 0.75, eh? so it's way below the 1%. So sounded, oh, 1%, no, we can never reach it. I don't believe this. I think it can be done. I think it can be easily done. It's a matter of survival of the fittest, so to say. You know, you must make sure that you can achieve that goal. It's not, it's not too low, in my view. So, but again, there the difficulty is, okay, what do you, what falls in this fee, fee cap and what falls out this fee cap? So I think there also is important to have some sort of a definition more closely of guarantees because, because some guarantees do not fall within this 1% fee cap and some do, you know. So I think there uh, we need to uh, tweak a little bit. I think you've, you've highlighted very well some of the issues that might be we might be facing. But IOPA is crucial as a supervisor yeah. in this and developing this. And of course, you sit in the stakeholder group. Yeah. Um, do you think sufficient powers and responsibilities have been granted to IOPA to foster uh, investor confidence? Well, I personally would like to see more powers for IOPA, to be honest. Uh, and that was intentionally also the idea. So that IOPA basically is responsible for, uh, in the first place, licensing the PEP. And that's, I think, where it should be also. It should be on the European level. It should not be left to national authorities, in my view. Eh? It should not be left to national authorities to decide whether a PEP can be on the market in the first place. I think that's up to IOPA. So this crucial element, I think, that was changed you know, from IOPA the power was given to the national authorities or so the central bank, for example, in the Netherlands, decides, okay, is a product PEP eligible or is it PEP proof? I would see that rather on IOPA level. Uh, still, you know, there's this provision where IOPA can decide to, uh, uh, to have a PEP removed from the market, you know, so, so they still have that intervening power. But I would say, no, let's also try to bring back the original idea, which is that IOPA is responsible for the PEP marketing in the first place or the PEP licensing in the first place. I think it should be on the European level because it's a European product. And let's not forget, it's a second regime. So it's a special kind of regulation. Eh? It's not a normal directive or even a normal regulation. It's a special kind. So I think also there, because of the completely European character of this product, I think IOPA should be in the end responsible for this. Gabriel Bernardino, the ex-chair, would be delighted to hear to hear us talk about this. He was always yeah. at the forefront of this. I'm sure our compatriot Petra Hilkema will take up this battle, and we wish her luck. And certainly, we 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 think it's it's important. It's important in the growth of the product to have uh, to have that that European anchoring, which I think is 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 important. But so, you're right, I, but I saw some uh, some um, uh, announcements from Petra Hilkema, uh, which were very encouraging. So I would say, I, I hope, I'm very confident she will uh, indeed proceed the line of Gabriel 
and uh, because uh, the PEP and all the PEP is number one priority of the Capital Markets Union, so it's really really important or number one. It's one of the highest priorities. So uh, I think Petra Hikuma should really push for this product to be a success. Yeah, and it's good to remind our, our listeners that you know the Capital Markets Union action plan which came out last year was really sort of looking taking a closer look at some of the key points following discussion by the high level forum on cmu um, which was composed of different stakeholders and there was major agreement that pensions and especially the pep uh, was key to develop cmu but that's Um, true because you think because if you think of it pensions you're right of course you know it's a national prerogative but basically it's the heart of the internal market, eh? because it's the heart of the free movement of persons. It's the heart of the free movement in the first place, you know. So I think uh, pension should be at least should be the core of the free movement provisions. It should be at least um, regulated as European as possible. Uh, you know, I remember Hans when I was working for a major European bank, and we tried to develop a sort of PEP. I think it must have been around 20, 20 odd years ago. We never got anywhere because of the tax issues, because of all the different regimes. Um, I but I think if we look at, you know, we, we want to have a future in Europe where people can go and easily work from one country to the next. Now, yep. if you have a decent pension PEP product where you just take your rights with you, that it is so much easier. Yep. Um, and I think that is important. But coming back to my original comments, I think the tracking system and the dashboard are going to help because no. different EU member states are going to see others are moving better, performing better or not, there's more transparency. This worked in economic governance and yeah. it might very well help CMU to have these kind of dashboards and trackers. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah. It, it might help, but I think it will not be enough. I think it really will, uh, um, you know, some sort of a paradigm shift must take place in the thinking of pensions, basically. Yeah. And so the tracking system, of course, very useful. Uh, auto-enrollment even is on the table now. Also a very useful, useful mechanism, you know, to reach more scale. But I think it starts with the perception of that it should be easier, you know, it should be easier to receive pensions or to have an overview, basically, you know. So, yes, tracking systems, of course, very useful, but it starts basically with the way you perceive, basically, your pension provision. Thank you, Hans. We've, we've, in a very short time, gone right to the heart of some of the issues facing uh, a, a European pension. Um, Product and market, um, we are getting there. There are a lot of experts who will fight to develop this. I've seen the interest of different pension funds to develop this. So it it will be an interesting year to see how how this will be developed. Hans, thank you very much for your comments and your no holds barred conversation. It was very enjoyable. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much.